Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are on Chapter 2 of The Dawn of Freedom. Let's see. The annals of this Ninth Crusade are yet to be written. The table of a mission that seemed to our age far more quixotic than the quest of St. Louis seemed to his. Behind the mist of ruin and rapine waved the calico dresses of women who dared and after the hoarse mouthings of the field guns rang the rhythm of the alphabet. Rich and poor they were, serious and curious, bereaved now of a father, now of a brother, now of more than these, that came seeking a life working and planting New England schoolhouses among the white and black of the South. They did their work well, and that first year they taught 100,000 souls and more. Evidently, Congress must soon legislate again on the hastily organized Bureau, which has so quickly grown into wide significance and vast possibilities. An institution such as that was well nigh as difficult to end as to begin. Early in 1866, Congress took up the matter when Senator Trumbull of Illinois introduced a bill to extend the Bureau and enlarge its powers. This measure received, at the hands of Congress, far more thorough discussion and attention than its predecessor. The war cloud had thinned enough to allow a clearer conception of the work of emancipation. The champions of the bill argued that the strengthening of the Freedmen's Bureau was still a military necessity, that it was needed for the proper carrying out of the 13th Amendment, and was a work of sheer justice to the ex-slave at a trifling cost to the government. The opponents of the measure declared that the war was over and the necessity for war measures passed, that the Bureau by reason of its extraordinary powers, was clearly unconstitutional in time of peace and was destined to irritate the South and pauperize the freedmen at a final cost of possibly hundreds of millions. These two arguments were unanswered and indeed unanswerable. The one that the extraordinary powers of the Bureau threatened the civil rights of all citizens and the other that the government must have power to do what manifestly must be done and that present abandonment of the free men meant their practical re-enslavement. The bill which finally passed enlarged and made permanent the Free Men's Bureau. It was promptly vetoed by President Johnson as, quote, unconstitutional, end quote, quote, unnecessary, end quote, and, quote, extrajudicial, end quote, and failed a passage over the veto. Meantime, however, the breach between Congress and the president began to broaden and a modified form of the lost bill was finally passed over the president's second veto, July 16th. The Act of 1866 gave the Freedmen's Bureau its final form, the form by which it will be known to posterity and judged of men. It extended the existence of the Bureau to July 1868. It authorized additional assistant commissioners, the retention of Army officers mustered out of regular service, the sale of certain forfeited lands to freedmen on nominal terms, the sale of Confederate public property for Negro schools, and a wider field of judicial interpretation and cognizance. The government, of the, un the government of the unreconstructed South was thus put very largely in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau, especially as in many cases the department military commander was now made also assistant commissioner. It was thus that the Freedmen's Bureau became a full-fledged government of men. It made laws, executed them, and interpreted them. It laid and collected taxes, defined and punished crime, maintained and used military force, 
and dictated such measures as it thought necessary and proper for the accomplishments of its various ends. Naturally, all these powers were not exercised continuously, nor to their fullest extent. And yet, as General Howard has said, quote, scarcely any subject that has to be legislated upon in civil society failed at one time or another to demand the action of this singular bureau, end quote. To understand and criticize intelligently so vast a work, one must not forget an instant the drift of things in the later 60s. Lee had surrendered, Lincoln was dead, and Johnson and Congress were at loggerheads. The 13th Amendment was adopted, the 14th pending, and the 15th declared in force in 1870. Guerrilla raiding, the ever-present flickering afterflame of war, was spending its force against the Negroes, and all the Southern land was awakening as from some wild dream to poverty and social revolution. In a time of perfect calm, amid willing neighbors and streaming wealth, the social uplifting of four million slaves to an assured and self-sustaining place in the body politic and economic would have been a Herculean task. But when to the inherent difficulties of so delicate a nice excuse me, but when to the inherent difficulties of so delicate and nice a social operation were added the spite and hate of conflict, the hell of war, when suspicion and cruelty were rifle, and gaunt hunger wept beside bereavement, in such a case, the work of any instrument of social regeneration was in large part foredoomed to failure. The very name of the Bureau stood for a thing in the South which for two centuries and better men had refused to even argue. That life amid free Negroes was simply unthinkable, the maddest of experiments. And I think that tells you there just how deeply rooted these concepts who were talking we I read we I just personally read Sister Citizen and we have read Sister Citizen collectively on Rafa Reading on the Rafa Reading Daily podcast and dissected it. And the stereotypes and shame and the they trace back some of the some of the myths that surround black people and how they go back to slavery and this that sentence there the life amid free Negroes was simply unthinkable, the maddest of experiments. And that is how, and even when you see the way that this Freedmen Bureau is being put together, how these things are being legislated, these things were, this, this was not about having a bigger military or uh, this was about the, the freedom and liberty and life and pursuit of happiness that these human beings had. They were legislating how it should happen in which manner it should happen, how quickly it should happen. And we've been stuck in that cycle as a people since, since then, you know, we've still been in this cycle of trying to legislate liberty and legislate freedom and legislate, uh, the opportunity to pursue happiness. Uh, because of the fact that people don't believe that, Black people, because of the society and because of structural and institutional hindrances, there are structural and institutional hindrances that are put in place because the society has a fear of the free 
black people, free thinking black people, free flowing, free moving black people. And that extends out to more people that you can't just only have a fear of black people being free without that soon turning into a fear of people in proximity of black people being free or, or uh, indigenous people or uh, Latinos. And, all, and so my point of that is saying all of this essentially is the importance of tracing the roots back of something is to be able to understand why it exists in the manner that it exists today. The agents that the Bureau could command varied all the way from unselfish philanthropists to narrow-minded busybodies and thieves. And even though it would be true that the average was far better than the worst, it was the occasional fly that helped spoil the ointment. Then amid all crouched the free slave, bewildered between friend and foe. He had emerged from slavery, not the worst slavery in the world, not a slavery that made all life unbearable, rather a slavery that had here and there something of kindliness, fidelity, and happiness, but with all slavery, which, so far as human aspiration and desert were concerned, classed the black man and the ox together. And when the Negro knew full well what... And the Negro knew full well that, whatever their deeper convictions may have been, Southern men had fought with desperate energy to perpetuate this slavery under which the black masses, with half-articulate thought, had writhed and shrivered. They welcomed freedom with a cry. They shrank from the master who still strove for their chains. They fled to the friends that had freed them, even though those friends stood ready to use them as a club for driving the, re the recalitrant South back into loyalty. So the cleft between the white and black South grew. Idle to say it never should have been. It was as inevitable as its results were pitiable. Curiously, curiously incredulous elements were left arrayed against each other. The North, the government, the carpetbagger, and the slave, here. And there, all the South that was white, whether gentleman or vagabond, honest man or rascal, lawless murderer or martyr to duty. Thus it is doubtly difficult to write of this period calmly, so intense was the feeling, so mighty the human passions that swayed and blinded men. Amid it all, two figures ever stand to typify the day to that coming age. The one, a gray-haired gentleman, whose fathers had quit themselves like men, whose sons lay in nameless graves, who bowed to the evil of slavery because his abolition threatened untold ill to all, who stood at last in the evening of life, a blighted, ruined form with hate in his eyes, and the other, a form hovering dark and motherlike her awful face black with the mist of centuries, had aforetime quailed at that white master's command, had bent in love over the cradles of his sons and daughters, and closed in death the sunken eyes of his wife. A, too, at his behest, had laid herself low to his lust and borne a tawny man-child to the world, only to see her dark boy's limbs scattered to the winds by midnight marauders riding after, quote, cursed niggers, end quote. These were the saddest sights of that woeful day, and no man clasped the hands of these two passing figures of the present past. But, hating, they went to their long home, and hating, their children's children live today. And 
right there, W.E.B. Dubois speaks so eloquently about the the formation of society, the the how the society was changing through this great event, which was the emancipation of the American slaves. And one of the things that is constantly spoken about by historians is the the significance of these of the relationships that were formed in this time period when they speak about the north being the the soldiers in the north who the black people were basically running to for for protection in a lot of cases for running to for guide guidance in a lot of cases these were not great heroic men these were not men who were anti-racist or men who truly believed in the equity and equality for all men these were men who were who essentially lived in a certain area and so when it was time to go to war they had to go to war on the beliefs of that area now of course part of living in an area means you're more prone to their belief systems but it didn't mean that they all had that belief and even that belief uh, Abraham Lincoln did not believe in the equality of black people among uh, white people. And so these these men, these slaves, men and women, children who, ex-slaves, men, women, and children who are now free, were still going to, were picking the lesser of two evils. The story of black people in, in this country can be told through the concept of having to pick the lesser of two evils or trying to pick the lesser of two evils. And so in that sense, the lesser of two evils was the Union and was the North and the Freedmen's Bureau. And the other evil that they chose to try to run away from was the evil of chattel slavery, was the evil of the Confederate Army and the soldiers in the South. And the same thing rings true about the South that rings true about the North is that everybody who was in the Confederate Army or who was in the South may not have bought into the some of these concepts of slavery and some of these ideals of slavery but they had to still go to war because the area was because the south was going to war and again that doesn't mean and of course part of living in an area means you're more likely to be susceptible to the ideals of and beliefs of that area but it's important to point out that uh, the men when we talk about slavery and this was one of the things that was spoken about in the book uh in defense of looting was that Everyone, every white man in the South cannot afford to have slaves, that it was an elite class of people in the South who had slaves and that white men who could not afford to have slaves and who could not afford to be slave owners were were white men who were trying to who had to join the workforce and the workforce was being diluted. The wages that they could get was being diluted because of the free labor market that existed through slavery. And so there were people who were being exploited who weren't slaves because that that were in the free labor market because labor was being exploited through slavery. And so what happens when this war breaks out and this war happens is that the black people and the the black community and these freed ex-slaves are used to unify these southern capitalists with the southern poor people, the southern elitists and the southern uh high class with the Southern poor under this manner of 
trying to keep black people in their place under this manner of not allowing these ex-slaves to gain too much power. You know, it was a political, a political maneuver that was done. And it's something that has stayed in this country since then. Begin. Here, then, was the field of work for the Freedmen's Bureau. And since, with some hesitation, it was continued by the Act of 1868 until 1869, let us look upon four years of its work as a whole. There were, in 1868, 900 Bureau officials scattered from Washington to Texas, ruling, directly and indirectly, many millions of men. The deeds of these rulers fall mainly under seven heads. The relief of physical suffering, the overseeing of the beginnings of the free labor, the buying and selling of land, the establishment of schools, the paying of bounties, the administration of justice, and the financiering of all these activities. Up to June 1869, over a half a million patients have been treated by Bureau physicians and surgeons, and 60 hospitals and asylums have been in operation. In 50 months, 21 million free rations were distributed at a cost of over $4 million. Next came the difficult question of labor. First, 30,000 black men were transported from the refuges and relief stations back to the farms. Back to the critical trial of a new way of working. Plain instructions went out from Washington. The laborers must be free to choose their employers. No fixed rate of wages was prescribed, and there was to be no peonage or forced labor. So far, so good. But where local agents differed toto calo, by the whole extent of the heavens, in other words, entirely. Okay, absolutely. But where other local agents differed absolutely in capacity and character, where the personnel was continually changing, the outcome was necessarily varied. The largest element of success lay in the fact that the majority of the freedmen were willing, even eager, to work. So labor contracts were written, 50,000 in a single state, laborers advised, wages guaranteed, and employers supplied. In truth, the organization became a vast labor bureau, not perfect, indeed, notably defective here and there, but on the whole successful beyond the dreams of thoughtful men. The two great obstacles which confronted the officials were the tyrant and the idler, the slaveholder who was determined to perpetuate slavery under any other name, and the freedman who regarded freedom as perpetual rest, the devil and the deep sea. In the work of establishing the Negroes as peasant proprietors, the Bureau was from the first handicapped and at last absolutely checked. Something was done, and larger things were planned. Abandoned lands were leased so long as they remained in the hands of the Bureau, and a total revenue of nearly half a million dollars derived from black tenants. Some other lands to which the nation had gained title were sold on easy terms, and public lands were open for settlement to the very few freedmen who had tools and capital. But the vision of, quote, 40 acres and a mule, end quote, the righteous and reasonable ambition to become a landholder, which the nation had all but categorically promised the freedmen, was destined in most cases to bitter disappointment. And those men of marvelous hindsight who are today seeking to preach to the Negro back to the present peonage of the soil know well, or ought to know, that the opportunity of binding the Negro peasant willingly to the soil was lost on that day 
when the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau had to go to South Carolina and tell the weeping freedmen, after their years of toil, that their land was not theirs, that there was a mistake somewhere. If by 1874 the Georgia Negro alone owned 350,000 acres of land, it was by grace of his thrift rather than by bounty of the government. The greatest success of the Freedmen's Bureau lay in the planting of the free school among Negroes and the idea of free elementary education among all classes in the South. It not only called the schoolmistresses through the benevolent agencies and built them schoolhouses, but it helped discover and support such apostles of human culture as Edmund Ware, Samuel Armstrong, and Erastus Kravitz. The opposition to Negro education in the South was at first bitter and showed itself in ashes, insult, and blood. For the South believed an educated Negro to be a dangerous Negro. And the South was not wholly wrong. For education among all kinds of men always has had, and always will have, an element of danger and revolution, of dissatisfaction and discontent. Nevertheless, men strive to know. Perhaps some inkling of this paradox, even in the unquiet days of the Bureau, helped the bayonet to lay on opposition to human training which still today lies smoldering in the South, but not flaming. Fisk Atlanta, How Fisk, Atlanta, Howard, and Hampton were founded in these days, and $6 million were expended for educational work, $750,000 of which the freedmen themselves gave of their poverty. Okay, let's reflect here. I think, I don't remember the exact time period in women racing class where we read about the schools being built in public education, but it it had to be around the same time period. And that was one of the things that this reconstruction time period, that was one of the things that Angela Davis also spoke about as being important is the public building of public schools, the expanding of public education, and how that did not only just benefit black people and uh, ex-slaves and the children of, of ex-slaves, but it also benefited poor white people who also at the time didn't have access to education as widely. And one of the things that has been a constant theme throughout these first two pieces of literature that we've read from W.E.B. Du Bois is the speaking of the yearning for knowledge that uh, the ex-slaves had, that black people had, the descendants of slaves had, that speaking of the yearning to be able to read, to be able to write, to be able to learn, and speaking about how, and he acknowledged that not only did white people think it to be dangerous for black people to learn how to learn, to be learning and to become educated, but that it was an element of danger that naturally exists in someone becoming educated and someone becoming knowledgeable. Uh, and he also acknowledges the danger that came with it as far as the danger, not necessarily the danger of a person becoming educated and knowledgeable, but the danger that they had to deal with in an effort to become, uh, learn to, to become educated and knowledgeable. And so think that when we speak about education and sorry looking for grabbing something when we speak about education and when we speak about literacy rates and when we speak about some of the 
some of the ways that black people as a whole might be behind compared to other groups of people in this country, it's important to understand the roots of our education and the roots of us getting knowledge and all the connotations that came with it. And and, and I've talked about this before too, the concept that, uh, I don't even remember what it's called medically, but that if your grandmother sees a snake and it imprints upon her to be scared and fearful of the snake, that yeah, it can the passed on trauma. Like it's like generational trauma that you can inherit. And so that has come with, with education. There's never been a time where the masses of black people have had equitable and safe access to education in this country. Such contributions, together with the buying of land and various other enterprises, show that the ex-slave was handling some free capital already. The chief initial source of this was labor in the army and his pay and bounty as a soldier. Payments to Negro soldiers were at first complicated by the ignorance of the recipients and the fact that the quotas of colored regiments from northern states were largely filled by recruits from the south, unknown to their fellow soldiers. Consequently, payments were accompanied by such frauds that Congress, by joint resolution in 1867, put the whole matter in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau. In two years, $6 million was thus distributed to 5,000 claimants, and in the end, the sum exceeded $8 million. Even in this system, fraud was frequent, but still the work put needed capital, but still the work put needed capital in the hands of practical paupers, and some, at least, was well spent. The most perplexing and least successful part of the Bureau's work lay in the exercise of its judicial functions. The regular Bureau court consisted of one representative of the employer, one of the Negro, and one of the Bureau. If the Bureau could have maintained a perfectly judicial attitude, this arrangement would have been ideal and must in time have gained confidence. But the nature of its other activities and the character of its personnel prejudiced the Bureau in favor of the black litigants and led without doubt to much injustice and annoyance. On the other hand, to leave the Negro in the hands of Southern courts was impossible. In a distracted land where slavery had hardly fallen, to keep the strong from wanton abuse of the weak and the weak from gloating insolently over the half-shorn strength of the strong was a thankless, hopeless task. The former masters of the land were, were preemptively ordered about, seized and imprisoned, and punished over and again, with scant courtesy from, from army officers. The former slaves were intimidated, beaten, raped, and butchered by angry and revengeful men. Bureau courts tended to become centers simply for punishing whites, while the regular civil courts tended to become solely institutions for perpetuating the slavery of blacks. Almost every law and method ingenuity could devise was employed by the legislators to reduce the Negroes to serfdom, to make them the slaves of the state, if not of individual owners, while the Bureau officials too often were found striving to put the, quote, bottom rail on top, end quote and give the freedmen a power and independence which they could not yet use. 
It is all well enough for us of another generation to wax wise with advice to those who bore the burden in the heat of the day. It is full easy now to see that the man who lost home, fortune, and family at a stroke and saw his land ruled by, quote, mules and niggers, end quote, was really benefited by the passing of slavery. It is not difficult now to say to the young freedman, cheated and cuffed about, who has seen his father's head beat into a jelly and his own mother namelessly assaulted, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Above all, nothing is more convenient than to heap on the Freedmen's Bureau all the evils of that evil day and damn it utterly for every mistake and blunder that was made. All this is easy, but it is, but it is neither sensible nor just. Someone had blundered, but that was long before Oliver Howard was born. There was criminal aggression and heedless neglect, but without some system of control, there would have been far more than there was. Had that control been from within, the Negro could have been re-enslaved to all intents and purposes. Coming as the control did from without, perfect men and methods would have bettered all things. And even with imperfect agents and questionable methods, the work accomplished was not undeserving of commendation. Such was the dawn of the, excuse me, such was the dawn of freedom. Such was the work of the Freedmen's Bureau, which, summed up in brief, may be epitomized thus. For some $15 million, beside the sum spent before 1865 and the dole of benevolent societies, this Bureau set going a system of free labor, established the beginning of peasant proprietorship, secured the recognition of black freedmen before courts of law, and founded the Free Common School in the South. On the other hand, it failed to begin the establishment of goodwill between ex-masters and freedmen, to guard its work wholly from paternalistic methods which discouraged self-reliance, and to carry out to any considerable extent its implied promises to furnish the freedmen with land. Its successes were the result of hard work, supplemented by the aid of philanthropists and the eager striving of black men. Its failures were the result of bad local agents, the inherent difficulties of the work, and national neglect. Such an institution, from its wide powers, great responsibilities, large control of monies, and generally conspicuous position, was naturally open to repeated and bitter attack. It sustained a searching congressional investigation at the instance of Fernando Wood in 1870. Its archives and few remaining functions were with blunt discourtesy transferred from Howard's control, in his absence, to the supervision of Secretary of War Belknap in 1872 on the Secretary's recommendation. Finally, in consequence of grave imitations of wrongdoing made by the Secretary and his subordinates, General Howard was court-martialed in 1874. In both of these trials, the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau was officially exonerated from any willful misdoing and his work commended. Nevertheless, many unpleasant things were brought to light. The methods of transacting the business of the Bureau were faulty. Several cases of defalcation were proved and the other frauds strongly suspected. There were some business transactions which savored of dangerous speculation, if not dishonesty and around it all lay the smirch of the Freedmen's Bank. Morally and practically, the Freedmen's Bank was part of the Freedmen's Bureau, although it had no legal connection with it. 
With the prestige of the government back of it and a directing board of unusual respectability and national reputation, this banking institution had made a remarkable start in the development of that thrift among black folk which slavery had kept them from knowing. Then in one sad day came the crash. All the hard, earned dollars of the freedmen disappeared, but that was the least of the loss. All the faith and saving went to, and much of the faith in men. And that was a loss that a nation which today sneers at Negro shiftlessness has never yet made good. Not even 10 additional years of slavery could have done so much to throttle the thrift of the free men as the mismanagement and bankruptcy of the series of savings banks chartered by the nation for their special aid. Where all the blame should rest, it is hard to say. Whether the bureau and the bank died chiefly by reason of the blows of his selfish friends or the dark machinations of his foes, Perhaps even time will never reveal, for here lies unwritten history. What stands out for me in the passages we just read is the things that happened around the Freedmen's Bank and how they pointed to the collapse and the downfall of that bank as being directly connected to Black people's distrust in banking and uh, and it being connected to black people uh, losing a lot of money that they never recovered again and i think our history is not taught to us at the extent in which it needs to be and sometimes we think that as a people there are certain things that we don't have or certain things that we don't parts of the society we don't participate in just because we're black and we just don't do it or and really there's things that have happened historically that have lent to black people culturally not buying into certain concepts because they've seen the negative impacts of them okay sorry about that abrupt ending let's go ahead and finish this chapter up of the foes without the bureau the bitterest were those who attacked not so much as conduct or policy under the law as the necessity for any such institution at all. Such attacks came primarily from the border states in the South, and they were summed up by Senator Davis of Kentucky when he moved to entitle the Act of 1866 a bill, quote, to promote strife and conflict between the white and black races by a grant of unconstitutional power, end quote. The argument gathered tremendous strength south and north, but its very strength was its weakness. For, argued the plain common sense of the nation, if it is unconstitutional, unpractical, and futile for the nation to stand guardian over its helpless wards, then there is left but one alternative, to make those wards their own guardians by arming them with the ballot. Moreover, the path of the practical politician pointed the same way. For, argued this opportunist, if we cannot peacefully reconstruct the South with white votes, we certainly can with black votes. So justice and force joined hands. The alternative thus offered the nation was not between full and restricted Negro suffrage, else every sensible man, black and white, would easily have chosen the latter. It was rather a choice between suffrage and slavery, after endless blood and gold had flowed to sweep human bondage away. Not a single Southern legislator stood ready to admit a Negro under any conditions to the polls. Not a single Southern legislator believed free Negro labor was possible without a system of, of restrictions that took all of his freedom away. There was scarcely a white man in the South who did not honestly regard emancipation as a crime, 
and its practical nullification as a duty. In such a situation, the granting of the ballot to the black man was a necessity, the very least a guilty nation could grant of wronged race, and the only method of compelling the South to accept the results of the war. Thus, Negro suffrage ended a civil war by beginning a race feud. And some felt gratitude toward the race thus sacrificed in its swaddling clothes on the altar of national integrity. And some felt and feel only indifference and contempt. Had political exigencies been less pressing, the opposition to government guardianship of Negroes less bitter, and the attachment to the slave system less strong, the social seer can well imagine a far better policy, a permanent free man's bureau, with a national system of Negro schools, a carefully supervised employment and labor office, a system of impartial protection before the regular courts, and such institutions for social betterment as savings banks, land, and building associations and social settlements. All this vast expenditure of money and brains might have formed a great school of prospective citizenship and solved in a way we have not yet solved the most perplexing and persistent of the Negro problems. That such an institution was unthinkable in 1870 was due in part to certain acts of the Freedmen's Bureau itself. It came to regard its work as merely temporary and Negro suffrage as a final answer to all present perplexities. The political ambition of many of its agents and protégés led it far afield into questions of active, into questionable activities until the South, nursing its own deep prejudices, came easily to ignore all the good deeds of the Bureau and hate its very name with perfect hatred. So the Free Man's Bureau died, and his child was the 15th Amendment. The passing of a great human institution before its work is done, like the untimely passing of a single soul, but leaves a legacy of striving for other men. The legacy of the Free Men's Bureau is the heavy heritage of this generation. Today, when new and vaster problems are destined to strain every fiber of the national mind and soul, would it not be well to count this legacy honestly and carefully? For this much all men know, despite compromise, war, and struggle, the Negro is not free. In the backwoods of the Gulf states, for miles and miles, he may not leave the plantation of his birth, and well nigh the whole rural South, the black farmers are peons, bound by law and custom to an economic slavery from which the only escape is death or the penitentiary. In the most cultured sections and cities of the South, the Negroes are a segregated, servile caste with restricted rights and privileges. Before the courts, both in law and in custom, they stand on a different and peculiar basis. Taxation without representation is the rule of their political life, and the result of all of this is, and in nature must have been, lawlessness and crime. That is the large legacy of the Free Man's Bureau, the work it did not do because it could not. I have seen a land right merry with the sun, where children sing and rolling hills lie like passionate women wanton with harvest. And there in the king's highway sat and sits a figure veiled and bowed, by which the traveler's footsteps hasten as they go. On the tainted air broods fear. Three centuries' thoughts has been the raising and unveiling of that bold human heart, and now behold, a century new for the duty and the deed. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And that brings us to the end of chapter two of The Souls of Black Folk. And this title was, this chapter was entitled Of the Dawn of Freedom. And the information about the Freedmen's Bureau and the Freedmen's Bank 
are what stands out to me the most. Uh, the the way in which the way in which W.E.B. Du Bois speaks about the possibilities of the Freedmen's Bureau and the things that they couldn't couldn't change that if they could have changed would have been impactful and the effect that it left you can still see even today in 2022 when it speak when he speaks about in the most culture sections and cities of the south the negroes are segregated servile caste with restricted rights and privileges before the courts both in law and custom they stand on a different and peculiar basis it's something that could be pulled out of a book that was written in the 21st century, not the 20th century. The statement, taxation without representation is the rule of their political life. And the result of all this and in nature must have been lawlessness and crime. That speaks to, again, situations that are very relevant in uh, the black community today. And so, again, what is important for this book uh, in the t in the terms of what should be what we should retain and what we should take away from it, I think is again tracing the roots to some of the issues that we're reading about when we read about the things that exist in high risers and the issues that exist in unequitable housing and high risers. When we read about the type of uh, structural racism that exists in the end of policing, when we read about all these different things. These are the places that they trace back to. They trace, yes, they trace back to, to chattel slavery, but they also trace back to the decisions that was made in the immediate uh, ending of that slavery. And those decisions were made uh, based off of people's racist belief systems. Okay, we're well over 30 minutes, so please share this episode on whatever platform you're listening to it on. I know that the beginning of this episode had like a little, little pitch problem. So sorry about that. We're still working on getting this audio to be up to par, but we are going to uh, just keep pushing until we get to that point. So we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Raw for Reading Daily as we continue to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois.